Hey, yo. Hey, this is Harlan Williams here. You are listening to the Harland Highway Podcast. Uh, great show today. Uh, we are going to be taking some of your phone calls, talking about uh, some of the things you've brought up in your phone calls to the Harland Highway. Uh, we are going to be uh, playing the second last installment of my short story, The Garden Hose Time Machine. Second last installment before we wrap it up with the big finale on the next podcast. So I hope you enjoy that. Also, some more of me uh, on the uh, the morning radio circuit when I go and do my stand up comedy shows. You will be able to hear. Uh, you'll be able to hear me kind of yucking it up with the uh, the on air voice uh, people uh, at uh, at uh, these radio stations I go to. A lot of fun in the moment, spontaneous humor, and then uh, we're also going to be—I'm going to be talking to you about my uh, my rock concert in the desert. I went to the old Cella rock concert with the Rolling Stones, the Who, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Roger Waters, Paul McCartney. Oh my God, it was unbelievable, and I'm going to talk about it here today. Let you know what I saw. Let you know what I heard. And uh, it should be interesting. So let's go. This is the Harland Highway. Where am I? What is this? Some kind of a joke or something? Welcome to the Harland Highway. What you talking about, Willis? Son, you got a panty on your head. Shut up and sit down, you big bald fuck. Oh, God, what's happening here? What's happening? Hey, Harland, it's Shelly. You just made a wrong turn onto the Harland Highway. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That is fantastic. What's wrong with everybody in this crazy place? The Harland Highway. (gasps) What is it? The opening. To what? To another dimension. This is Harland Williams. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. That is fantastic. Hello? Hello? Sitting in the left lane. A car to my left turning left, a car to my right, playing the podcast in my car, beautiful fall day in western Pennsylvania, and you proceed to scream, a la a la chocolate bar, chicken tail, man. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't a la a la chocolate bar. What it is, I said on my other podcast, is to, in order to keep kids and their families off my property at Halloween... I created my own chocolate bar, and when they ring the doorbell, I hold it up, and it's called Ala Ala Akbar. That's the name of the chocolate bar. It's not Ala Ala Chocolate Bar. It's Ala Ala Akbar, and it is a chocolate bar. So when, when the bratty kids open my door, I just hold it up and go, Ala Ala Akbar! Ala Ala Akbar! And, of course, the parents think I'm a terror cell. They grab their kids, they run away, and I don't have to deal with Halloween. So I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> Come by my house and try one out on December 31st. With nuts. Hey, Harlan. It's Blake from Dallas. I'm a big fan of your movie, Fudgy Wudgy Fudge Face. And I was watching it the other day for... It's probably got to be my 15th time to watch it over the past several years that I've owned it. And um, I was thinking, man, I wish that this had a that this had the director commentary 
and since you directed the movie and made the movie yourself, I was wondering, I'm just tossing the idea if maybe one day you might ever sit down and uh, do a commentary podcast for it. That'd be great just to sit there and listen to one of your podcasts as you describe the scenes and kind of how you came up with them. Because that movie, it's so intricate. I love it. And um, some of the the scenes are just so whacked out. It's just, I, I wonder what was going through your mind when you created that scene and how you shot it. I really love it. And I love the show. Take care, Harlan. All right, Blake from Dallas. Thank you so much, Blake. Uh, what a what a wonderful phone call. I really appreciate it. Um, for those of you that don't know what Blake's talking about, I did my own movie. Uh, it took me six years to shoot this movie. It's an epic movie. Maybe one of the I call it the dumbest movie ever made, but it's a lot of fun. And it took me six years because I did everything myself. I wrote it. I star in it. I directed it. I cast it. I I did the hair and makeup, the wardrobe, the editing, the music. I mean, you name it. I did this whole thing on my own. And the reason I did it is because when, I, when it was all said and done and the dust settled on my life, I wanted there to be one, one film that I did that was just mine and not not touched by a bunch of uh, you know network people or executives or studios who always put their hands all over things so the, this movie was a, a a work of purity it was a, a work of taking something from out of the mind putting it on paper putting it on film and putting it out there without anybody messing with it and altering it and changing it, it is it is my pure vision and it's a very silly movie, and if you want it, you can you can order it uh, from my web store at harlowwilliams.com. It's called Fudgy Wudgy Fudge Face. It's about an alien and a hillbilly that meet in the middle of the desert and become friends and go on a miraculous journey. <laughs> um, and uh, I really love doing it, and uh, if you want, you can also download it on Amazon. Uh, you can rent it, or you can buy it if you go on Amazon and type in Fudgy Wudgy Fudge Face, or if you want a hard copy that I personally autograph, uh, we will mail it to you. Just order it in the store at harlowwilliams.com. It's a DVD. Uh, but to answer your question, my friend, uh, that's a great idea. Um, unfortunately at the moment, I don't have time to do a whole running commentary on the movie that, that would take quite an effort on my behalf. And it's a great idea. Maybe one day I will, but here's what you'll do be what I'll do because, uh, man, I really appreciate the fact that you love the movie and you've watched it 15 times and, and you're right, man, believe me the, the you know, when, when you're shooting something, your own guerrilla style, you really get inventive and you have very interesting uh, techniques on how to film things. And, and uh, so here's what I'll do because I, I just appreciate your kind words and your dedication uh, to the movie. And obviously it was a huge, uh, it was a huge, uh, you know, passion project for me. Um, and, uh, here's what I'll do. Why don't you give me two or three scenes, maximum of three, minimum of one, obviously, but if you give me two or three scenes, uh, that you really like, or you're really curious about, or you're wondering, as you said, how I did it, how I filmed the scenes, 
uh, I will uh, I will tell you on the podcast. I will describe those scenes. I will I will tell you how I went about it, that the motivation behind them, how I came up with the scenes. Um, and you know, you're right. I never thought about it, but there's an interesting there's there's an interesting story behind every scene in that movie. Trust me. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting to hear how everything went down with every damn frame of that movie. There's some very funny and interesting stories to be told. And I, I think you've opened, I think you've opened a Pandora's box of, of interesting, uh, storytelling. So, uh, thank you so much for the call. Please call back and, uh, you know, let me know about two or three of the scenes you want to hear about. And I will go into detail just for you. And, uh, Thank you for, for uh, loving the movie. And for those of you that want to uh, get it, as I said, harlowwilliams.com, order it. Fudgy Wudgy Fudge Face. The, the uh, DVD comes autographed. Or go to amazon.com, type in Fudgy Wudgy Fudge Face movie, and you can buy it or uh, download it digitally and rent it. Uh, I think it's only like four bucks, and I think the hard copy is only like 12 bucks in my store. So. Hope you uh, get a chance to see it. Thanks for bringing it up. And uh, and let's get on with the show. You know, I think what we should do is I think I'll play um, a little more of my, my time spent on radio in Pittsburgh. I've been getting some good feedback on that. And uh, as, as, as you guys have been hearing, I have a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's kind of uh, following the, uh, the morning dredge for stand-up comedians like myself and probably most entertainers when we blow into a new town in order to promote our shows we have to get up early in the morning and and go to radio stations and tv stations and we have to we have to be funny at six seven in the morning and we have to be on and we have to and we have to, you know, talk and we have to let people know where we are and and entice them with our wit to get them out to the comedy club. And it works. I have people come up to me after the shows and go, oh my God, Harlan, we heard you on the radio. You were so funny. We had to get tickets and come to the show. So so the radio thing really works. And uh, these guys in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh are just fantastic. They've been such good friends. You know, there's some cities I go to and, and it's, you know, the radio guys kind of rotate in and out. But these Wildcats in Pittsburgh, they, they've been running one of the top shows in Pittsburgh. I think they've been together 20 years or more. And uh, every time I'm there, they have me on. And that's why I recorded it, because I know we always have so much fun. And most of the material that comes out of my interviews there is pretty much made up on the spot. We just kind of go with it. So uh, I thought I'd play you another segment of it since you guys have been enjoying it. And uh, here it is. Raj, uh, let's hit it. This is me, yours truly, Harlan Williams, on the air in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, doing the morning radio to provoke, promote my weekend comedy gigs. One of our favorite uh, uh, TV comedy festival <laughs> headliners, Harlan Williams. Harlan did the funniest thing that has ever happened uh, at a TV comedy festival. He actually watched every comic that went before him, including Bill Crawford, mm. and then went out in his first three minutes, was an amalgamation of everybody else's set. And it was one of the funniest things to be on the side of the stage watching the comics panic. <laughs> as, as I remember that. As yeah. was doing their oh. material in his own sort of way, and, and the crowd didn't know what to think, and he wrapped it up. And that was Tommy John again. 
who told that really heavy story about his dad's passing, and yeah. he even worked that into it. Yeah. And it was, I mean, the, the, you blew the roof off the place in three minutes. But I was standing next to Bill when you started it, and we were like, oh, God, he's doing the... Almost I broke out into a sweat. I was like, oh, God, I've stolen this bit from Harlow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I did another festival once uh, where, where I think there was eight or nine comics in front of me and I, I took a bit from all their acts and started out and did, did the whole the first like five minutes of my set that's amazing yeah that's, it's fun that is such a cool thing to do yeah. I mean it, and it has to blow people away when you do it because it's no one's expecting you to go out there and do that and you you wove it perfectly well what's fun is that at the beginning they don't they don't get it and then they they, they kind of think the first bit you drop you go oh that sounds a bit familiar right and then by the time you get to the second one like wait a minute and then by the third one they're like oh i see what he's doing and then it just so it just like builds i every chance i get i love to do that That i forgot that you that you've done this a lot you won't remember this but we worked together a long time ago at the pittsburgh improv and i did this joke to close at the time about the airport and about the two statues and then there's a there's a T-Rex, T-Rex statue. Yeah. And you come out and do that joke basically. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I just came into the airport. <laughs> you see that thunder lizard stepping up the escalator there? Thunder yeah, it's like lizard. You, yeah. you re-amalgamated the whole story and it was just, it was brilliant. <laughs> but it still caught me off guard that night and yeah. I'm thinking, oh no, what's <laughs> happening? Did he not see my set? And now he's coming out there and then you were like, you know, you get the Skittles under your car. And I'm like, oh, God, no, no. Uh, yeah, it struck fear into everyone's heart. It did. Oh, my God, that's funny. They caught on, right, when he was starting to get into John against stuff. Yes. That's when they caught on. And then it was just, once it catches fire, it's an inferno till you finish. Yeah, it's really, it's really fun because people realize that you're uh, you're kind of just grabbing. And I, I, I try to weave a story. Like, I try to take five or six acts and and weave them into a coherent story using bits and pieces. So it's so, fun. So cool when you do that. It's like a comedy Rubik's Cube, baby. <laughs> so we have uh, the legend. I don't know how much uh, American Ooh. football you, you watch these days. But, oh, yeah. Uh, Antonio Brown is one of the biggest sure. stars in the league. Uh, oh, yeah. Pittsburgh Steelers. He's calling us. Great. Come back from this commercial oh, break. Oh, cool, cool. So we're going to talk to Antonio Brown. It's what I like to call the definitive Antonio Brown interview. This will be unlike any interview uh, you've ever heard with Antonio Brown because uh, this could get us a Peabody. Maybe. Wow. Can can we call the Peabody? And uh, <laughs> what if it gets you a Sherman? <laughs> Peabody and Sherman. Peabody and Sherman. I'd rather have a Sherman. Yeah, sure. Just cleaner, shorter. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Peabody's so. We're shooting for a Sherman with uh, Antonio (laughs) Brown next on the DVE morning show. Did he have a concussion? Yeah. At the end of the season, yeah. Is it? I I feel like if you have a concussion, you can get away with a lot. Like, you could, like, go in somewhere and shoplift. (laughs) It's like, sir, you didn't pay for those 12 pair of pants and those five pairs of shoes. Yeah, I got a concussion, man. <laughs> you can go to the zoo and, like, punch a giraffe in the throat. <laughs> yeah, I got a concussion, man. I didn't know what I was doing. You know what I mean? Can you do that? I don't think is you it, can. Is it a way out? Because well, I want one if there is. If it is. Yeah. You want a concussion? I wouldn't mind one. Do you have a canoe paddle around? Just hit me in the head. That's how you'd like to get I'd like to get whacked down. with a canoe paddle. Yeah. yeah. If you got one. As a friend. I'm asking as a friend to give me a concussion. 
so I can go punch a rhino in the ass. <laughs> 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 I think it's going to happen. I think you owe me that. As a friend. As a friend. As a friend. As a friend. I'd like to drop kick a manatee <laughs> right in the pelvic region. Do they even have a pelvic I region? Those fat mm. sons of... <laughs> they don't have pelvises. How come you never see a manatee doing a Jenny Craig commercial? It's always Marie Osmond, <laughs> who looks great. Like she's thin as a rail. Why not have a manatee on there? I mean, they're fat. I know, but the point would be that you could look like Marie Osmond. Okay. But most of them look like a manatee. Harold Williams hanging out with us on TV. So there you go. Another little sampling of what it's like to do the early morning radio promotions. Uh, My thanks to those cats in Pittsburgh uh, at the DVE, they are really pros and really good, and uh, it's always an honor to go in and jam with them. I'll play a little more over the next few podcasts because I think it's kind of fun stuff. Um, but for now, I want to switch gears and uh, talk to you about something uh, that I did uh, just this last weekend, and man, was it fun. I went to this huge rock concert out uh, in the desert near Palm Springs. Uh, It's the same uh, area where they do Coachella every year. And they were calling this uh, rock concert Old Cella because a lot of the the older rock bands were playing at it. And not only were they the older rock bands, but these are the rock bands that are really the foundations of rock and roll. These are the rock bands that created rock and roll, that started rock and roll, that are founding members of rock and roll, if you can believe it. I mean, you gotta you got to remember that at, at every point in time, there's nothing until there's something. And at one point in time, rock and roll did not exist. And then these young kids came along and started experimenting with sound and with instruments and with noise and with levels and with energy and all the elements that go into rock and roll. And they gave birth to a genre of music that that is probably the most popular and influential and and, uh, biggest money-making, you know, genre of music that, that there is. Rock and roll, man. We all love it. And, uh, and you know, when I say these people were at the forefront, I'm talking Paul McCartney from the Beatles. Uh, the Beatles and Elvis kind of kicked the whole rock and roll thing off practically. I mean, there's other people mixed in there, but, man, oh, man, these are the ones that really brought it to life and made it pop and, you know, filtered into everyone's living room through the radio and through the records. Uh, so we started off with Paul McCartney. Then we had uh, we have Bob Dylan, who was an American folk hero who helped shape the, the early beginnings of folk rock. And then we had The Who, part of the, uh, the British invasion, the, the rock group The Who, with just a really raw, edgy sound and their, their erratic and, and crazy stage antics. And then we had Neil Young, who kind of came out of the folk country music type of, type of uh, world. Uh, Neil Young. And then uh, we had Roger Waters. When Roger Waters was at the, at, the, uh, at the show, who was one of the uh, founders and members of Pink Floyd. 
a hugely influential rock group that that was one of the early pioneers of kind of techno rock, technical rock and roll and experimenting with synthesizers and and putting deep heavy messages into music and then of course the rolling stones were at this thing i mean does it get any more iconic than the rolling stones mick jagger and uh keith uh Richards and Charlie Watts, Ronnie Wood. I mean, like, you know, to have all these guys under one roof playing the same venue, I mean, it was something else, man. You know, I I went to it and wasn't sure what to expect. Obviously, I'm an older guy, so I grew up on all of this music. And I had seen the Stones before, but I hadn't seen any of the other bands before. And so I was really excited and uh, man, they were they were really good, and the, and the venue was great. It was this huge. I guess it, it during normal times, it's a it's a horse polo place. So it's these giant fields with beautiful, really uh, manicured green grass, kind of the same type of grass you'd see on a putting green at a golf course. So it was just acres and acres of this beautiful grass. It was almost like we were walking around on a carpet. And giant acreage, and uh, they had food stands set up everywhere, and they had really excellent security. It was well organized. The parking was well organized. I mean, 100,000 people filtered in and out of this concert. And I pulled in and parked as easily as if I was uh, pulling into the grocery store. No delays, no. I mean, it, it it was pretty miraculous. And it's set in the middle of the desert, uh, north of the Salton Sea and east of Palm Springs, California. And this part of the desert is hot. I mean, you're, you're talking it's up in the hundreds plus, like a lot of the year. And so it was beautiful about it is it was really hot. And when night came along, it remained hot. It didn't get chilly. It didn't get cold. You had kind of that romantic desert, arid summer air and uh and it was just the perfect climate for sitting outside and uh, we had a full moon it just happened to be the weekend of the full moon which was just beautiful so it was a real aura in the air there was a real the weather was amazing uh, the stars were in the sky and so you'd get there around three or four o'clock you'd mill around you'd have something to eat and, uh, and then you'd grab a beer or whatever, and you'd go in and, you know, we had seats. It was all the security was really well organized getting to your seats. And it wasn't like Coachella where there's four or five stages all over the place. It's just, it was just two, one stage and two acts would play per night. So it'd be, uh, you know, first night it was Dylan and the Stones. Then it was Neil Young and, and Paul McCartney. And then it was The Who and uh, Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. And so everyone was focused in the same place. Everyone was watching the same show. Beautiful temperature, full moon, sound system incredible, giant screen behind the band, like enormous. Like this thing was the size of a football field. So you could. And the definition from the cameras was just crystal clear. So it was almost, you could see every facial tick, every wrinkle, every, I mean, it was it was beautifully done. And there'd be like an hour intermission between each song. And, uh, you know, I'll run you through a little bit um, from each act and, and give you my kind of uh, comments 
on who it was. So let's start with Bob Dylan. He was the first one, and I'd heard I'd heard some bad things that he doesn't talk to the crowd and that he mumbles and he's incoherent and you can't understand him. And and uh, well, you know what? Here, have a listen for yourself and see if you think that's true. So there I am. I'm with my cousin Kevin, and the music sounds great. But then he starts singing. And it sounds like Grover from Sesame Street. It's kind of weird. So there you go. That's him singing. And and at first I was a little annoyed. I was a little like, I can't understand him. But but then the more I listened to him, I, I started I started to, you know, because he was singing in English, I started to realize that I could pick out a lot of the words if I really listened. And I realized he wasn't mutating the language. He just had this very gravelly, like, cadence where everything flowed together. And he kind of talked like this. But if you listen real close, you can still understand what he was saying, you know. And so it was really neat because it kind of went with the music, the style of music he was playing. And, um, you know, it made me listen. It made me listen harder to what he was singing to pick out the words. And once I focused on that, it was actually really enjoyable. Now, that being said, I don't know the whole Dylan backstory. I know he made co- major contributions to, to the rise of rock and roll and folk music. And he was one of the first people to kind of put poetry and socially aware lyrics to songs and things like that. So uh, he... he you know, the, the the history of rock tells the story that he was a major influence in music, in rock and roll. So um, so it was really great to see a guy that was such a legend. Um, the one thing I'll say that was bad, though, he did not connect with the crowd at all. He, he did not walk out and say hello. He did not say hi. He did not introduce a song. And when he finished, he did not say goodbye. He did not talk to the audience one word nothing not one single word did he say and he was the only one too out of the whole group that um he was in charge of directing the cameras so the cameras were only allowed to film him from behind and from a really wide shot there were no close-ups of the front of his face or close-ups of of him and you know in a way it was kind of like the, the audience felt shut out and alienated. You could hear people yelling like, hey, man, why won't you talk to us and say something? And, uh, and in a way, he created a disconnect for the people watching, which I thought was not a good thing. You should always respect your audience, even if you're an eccentric or a weirdo. Um, and for that, I felt that was a bit rude and a, a bit disrespectful to the people that were paying to see him. And, uh, and so, you know, you couldn't really see his face. He wouldn't talk to anybody. The music was good, 
but uh, you know, I would have I would have thought that he would have made a uh, an effort to uh, you know connect with the fans. So uh, I wasn't disappointed, and I I wasn't over the moon, but it was okay then. So there you go. Um, I'll leave it there because, you know, I just I just realized like just to talk about Bob Dylan took you know ten minutes, and if I talk about every act I saw at uh, at this concert, um, it would take like two hours. So what I'll do is I'll break it up and I'll talk about some of the other acts and uh, and my reaction to them on future podcasts. Um, but we are coming to the end of our time with this one, and so before we slip away, I want to uh, I want to put up the second last installment of my short story, The Garden Hose Time Machine. I don't know if you guys have been following along, but it started uh, innocently with a guy, a grown man whose marriage is not doing great, who's who's uh, got some issues with his family, as most of us do. And he one day, while he's cutting the grass, brings the garden hose to his mouth for a drink of water, and it kind of sends him into a flashback that seems very real. And uh, and so he continues to take sips from this hose over the next days and weeks, and um, he keeps flashing back, and the flashbacks get more and more intense to the point where he is now suffered a heart attack and has been hospitalized and uh we will see where it goes from here so this is the second last installment and the next podcast will have the very last installment we'll wrap it all up i hope you enjoy uh another part of my short story the garden hose time machine Brett woke up the next morning at 6.45 a.m. The sun had just climbed over the distant horizon and he could see its fiery orange brilliance out of his hospital room window. It felt warm and comforting. He just stared as it slowly rose higher in the sky. Everything was quiet. The commotion usually heard on the hospital floor was almost zero. The world was just waking up. Brett shook his head, trying to clear some of the grogginess induced by whatever it was they had injected into his veins the night before. His memories of yelling at Tommy came back, as did pieces of the conversation about his dad. Brett didn't want to go there. He knew he shouldn't be stressed. He shifted his focus to Sherry. There she was again, curled up in the chair next to his bed. Asleep. Close. Connected. Brett studied her gentle features as the morning sun bathed her skin and made it glow ever so softly. He took in every detail of her face, the lines, the textures, the beauty. What a fool I've been, he thought to himself, realizing in his vulnerable state what a rock she had been, what a wonderful wife and mother she had been, and that he had been everything short of what she was that the effort he had put into the family was certainly not up to par with hers. Brett felt ashamed in that moment, ashamed that it took a crisis like this to make him see what a disappointment he was. It was too painful to wallow in his shortcomings. He needed to get up, 
off the bed like the useless failure that he felt he was. Not wanting to wake Sherry, Brett slowly rolled out of bed and walked over to the window to look outside. Before him was the wide open sky, clear and blue, a light canopy of clouds floating aimlessly to the east. Brett rubbed his arm, scratching the two little puncture marks that had scabbed up where the IV had been inserted. He marveled at the miracle of modern medicine and how it could save lives. It gave him a fresh perspective as he stared out at the wide-open, clear sky. Sherry moaned in her sleep and shifted slightly. Brett turned and looked at her again, taking her in, feeling the love for her in his heart swell, knowing she had been by his side every devoted second. He felt so insufficient in that moment. He needed to give back to her some of what she so unselfishly always offered. He needed to remind her, and himself, just how deep his love for her was. He scanned the room as if he would find something there would be the answer. There was nothing. Frustrated, he turned his back on the white, empty room and resumed taking in the view outside. His gaze shifted from the sky down to the lawn and garden below. The grass was green and lush, the trees full and leafy, a buzz with small birds and a few frantic squirrels. But then, off to the side, near the far wall, Brett saw something that surely must have been a sign from above, a small answer to what he needed. Protruding from the ground was a beautiful rose bush peppered with flowery white roses, the kind of white roses he had promised he would give Sherry every year to remind her of his love for her the kind of white roses he had neglected to bring for a very long time. Half riddled with guilt and half overjoyed, Brett could not contain himself. With the utmost stealth, he crept past Sherry as she slept and snuck out of his hospital room. Outside, Brett could feel the moist grass crawling up in between his toes. Somehow he found it refreshing. That and the crisp summer morning air made Brett feel alive, excited. From his vantage point on the hospital lawn, he counted the floors and stared up to his window. He wondered how many other tormented souls lay inside this giant building full of human suffering. And it was in that moment that Brett had a realization. That this was the same hospital his father had been in back in the early 80s. St. James Hospital. So strange, Brett thought. This is where my father died all those years ago. Quickly, Brett shook those unhappy thoughts away. He wanted to keep his energy positive and focused on Sherry. He walked quickly over to the rose bush and searched for the fullest and most beautiful blossom he could find. As he located it, right near the top of the rose bush, he couldn't seem to shake off thinking about his father and what his final moments must have been like in this hospital. Brett's thick fingers bent and twisted the stem of the rose, cautious not to be pricked by the thorns. Eventually the stem gave way and snapped. Brett had his beautiful white rose for Sherry. The lingering thoughts of his father pushed away due to his small success of acquiring the rose. Brett smiled and felt good inside. Picturing his wife opening her eyes and finding this beautiful flower and all it represented, resting 
in her lap. He pictured Sherry smiling, then laughing, then her laughter turning to tears. He pictured them embracing, maybe crying together, staring into each other's eyes and saying I love you to each other for the first time in what seemed forever. He pictured all that until suddenly, out of the corner of his eye, he noticed something hanging on the wall beside a small shrub. Wound tightly and neatly on a holder, it was a hose, a big, green, long garden hose. Brett stared at the hose intensely, almost the way one does when coming face to face with an angry stray dog. You just stop in your tracks, thinking, planning your next move, wondering what it should be. And in that moment, Brett's mind rewound all those other moments, all the miraculous trips back in time, some beautiful, some pleasant, and some horrific. They were all moments from his past that he had lived before. And for the first time, Brett realized that they were chronological. They started with him as a boy playing catch with his dad, and the latest one being the horrible episode of seeing his mother being beaten. So what would be next, Brett wondered. Would the journey be bad or good? And why here? Why now? At the hospital where his father had died. And with that observation, Brett's face suddenly narrowed. He felt a slight tightness in his chest. What if Tommy had been right? What if the journey back could take him to a place he had never been? The place standing right in front of him. The hospital where he had refused to come and see his dying father. A trickle of sweat meandered down the side of Brett's temple. He squeezed the white rose in his hand. He knew he had seen enough, that he had been through too much emotionally, physically. He knew that another stressful event could severely impact his heart. He knew he had to walk away. With stern determination, Brett turned his back on the garden hose and began walking back across the soft emerald grass lawn. But it was only after about ten steps that he came to a halt. He cautiously looked around as if he was about to do something he shouldn't. Upon seeing that no one else was in the vicinity, Brett took a deep breath turned around, and purposefully marched back towards the garden hose hanging on the wall. As Brett picked the hose up in his hand, he stuffed the rose in a strap on his hospital gown. No matter what happened, he had to hold on to Sherry's rose. With his other hand now free, he reached for the faucet, his hand trembling slightly as he hesitantly turned it on. As the pressurized water rumbled through the hose, Brett took one last look around at his surroundings. The trees, the grass, the sky, even the hospital. He knew that this time there might be no coming back. That this time his heart might not be able to take whatever was waiting for him on the other side. His curiosity was too great. Perhaps even his need was too strong. He had come this far. He knew he had to keep going. And with angst in his heart, he slowly brought the trickling hose up to his mouth and began to drink. Young man? A woman's voice startled Brett. He instantly whirled around and saw a nurse standing on the laneway at the other side of the lawn. Brett was relieved to see that he hadn't been transported anywhere this time. It was the same lawn he had crossed in his bare feet just mere moments ago. 
There's a drinking fountain inside, young man. I wouldn't drink out of that dirty old hose. Come on, I'll show you. The friendly nurse motioned for Brett to come to her, and he felt more than happy to oblige. He dropped the hose and began a slow run across the lawn. But the closer he got to the nurse, the more he sensed that something was wrong. First of all, he couldn't feel the softness of the grass on the soles of his bare feet. And second, as he got closer to the nurse, he noticed her clothing. It looked rather odd, kind of dated and very old school. The little white nurse hat perched on top of her head seemed like something right out of the pages of an old life magazine. And then Brett looked beyond the nurse, towards the parking lot where all the cars were. Something was different. All the cars were older, vintage 1970s and 80s. Brett looked down at his feet. He now knew why he couldn't feel the grass in his toes. He was wearing sneakers, the blue ones with the white stripes that he owned when he was 18. Tommy had been right. Brett was back in the past again. Except this time it was in a scene that he had never lived through before. Come this way, the nurse said as Brett finally caught up to her. She walked him back to the doors of the hospital and pulled one open. Brett had a full view of her nurse's uniform and realized this is how ridiculous they looked back then. She pointed down the hall. There's the fountain on the left. It's probably a lot colder, too. Brett nodded and thanked her as he stepped inside. Who are you here to see? she asked helpfully. Brett was blindsided by the question because he wasn't really sure. He had never been here before. But somewhere in his subconscious, he had a feeling who it might be. Uh, my, my dad, uh, Norm Coleman. Did you know what floor he's on? Brett couldn't believe he had just said that, for two reasons. One, what were the odds his father was even here? And two, Brett had no desire to see him after what he had done to his mother. Oh yes, Mr. Coleman is on the 12th floor. Room 79, I believe. <laughs> I was working that floor yesterday. The nurse smiled, hoping that she had been of help. Uh, th thank you, ma'am, Brett stuttered, unsure if he even wanted to know. You're welcome, she replied cheerily before turning and walking away down the long, shiny hallway. Brett stood there alone, unsure of his next move. He was here. His father was here. Brett had no idea how to process it. Every fiber in his body was telling him to turn and run away. But a lingering pain, deep in his heart, was telling him he had to go to the 12th floor. After standing in the empty hall for what seemed like forever, Brett finally began the long walk toward the elevator at the far end of the hall. After 30 years, he was finally going to get his chance to say goodbye. The elevator ride up was surreal. The other passengers dressed in clothing that went with the time period. Brett felt like he was in a movie or something. Even he was in clothes that he had long since discarded. Have a nice day, folks, a portly man said as he left the elevator on the eighth floor. Brett watched the doors close and he wondered to himself if the man he had just seen was still alive back in the real world. And then... Seconds later, the elevator doors eased to a halt on the 12th floor. The brass doors slid open and Brett emerged into a long, ivory hallway. 
the floor shimmering with floor wax, sounds of the dead and dying, their coughs and moans echoing off the featureless walls. A small placard on the wall indicated the direction to room 79 where his father was. Brett felt a pit form in the bottom of his stomach. He wondered if this was the right time, the right place. What if we walked in the room and it wasn't his father? What if this was just a random memory or a vision that was all for naught? Slowly, Brett turned and walked toward room number 79. His feet felt heavy, like lead. Part of Brett was still fighting the idea of seeing his father, if, in fact, he was really there. Brett had signed off a long time ago, since that night of the beating, that he never wanted to see his father's face again, that he never wanted to talk to him or hear his voice. Brett had known his whole life that that horrific night had changed him and his family forever. They were never close again, his sisters seemed angry and unforgiving of all of them. His mother never seemed the same. She always seemed to have a far-off look in her eyes, almost as if she were staring off into a different life, a better life. And Brett, he knew that his idea of love, of family, had been rocked. He no longer trusted in the idea of marriage, of togetherness. Guiltily, he knew it was Sherry's relentlessness and unselfish love of him that made it possible to find in her a sanctuary, a safe place that he could trust, be loved. The only problem was Brett knew that since the night of the beating, he was never fully able to give her the same love back. It saddened him. It hurt him because he knew it hurt her. He knew that she loved him regardless Brett was pretty sure she knew he wasn't giving her all she deserved. He knew that he had never lived up to the promise of the White Rose. As all these thoughts and emotions washed over Brett, they just as suddenly stopped. His heart skipped a beat as he now stood in front of a thick wooden door with the number 79 on it. Brett stood outside for what seemed forever. He couldn't even touch the door. The best he could do was put his ear close and listen for movement. A sound, perhaps. Some kind of clue that would let him know if his father was on the other side. But no sound ever came. Brett began embracing the idea of leaving. Turning around and leaving well enough alone. Leaving the history and the past where it belonged. No, Brett didn't need to do this. He was resigned to the way he had handled it. He had come to accept the punishment he had fortuned his father. He deserved it for what he had done. Brett turned and walked away, perhaps two or three steps, when suddenly he heard something that stopped him dead in his tracks. Brett came a hoarse and muffled voice from behind the door. Brett stood frozen, the sound of his father's voice like a punch to the gut, like an arrow through his heart. Brett's mouth suddenly went dry, his heart racing. Breddy! The ghostly voice came again, this time slightly louder and more agonized. Brett couldn't take it. It was too close, it was too desperate. He could feel his father's need as he called to Brett by his childhood name. Breddy! The third time was enough to make Brett crack. 
He knew he wanted to punish his father, but this, this would be too cruel. To be so close and not make an entrance would perhaps be something not even Brett himself could live with. Slowly, Brett turned back to the door. Nervously, he pushed down on the handle and opened the door a crack. Instantly, a slight swoosh of air wafted into his face, assaulting his nasal passages. The scent of medicine, death, and his father, all concocting in his sinuses, a precursor to what he was about to see. Whoa. There it is. There it is. The second last installment of my short story, The Time Machine Garden Hose. I don't know if you're sucked in or you're drawn in or you're like, whatever, dude. But, uh... But uh, I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed it. I've been getting some really great uh, feedback from everybody. I'll, I'll I'll read some more of your emails and play some more of your phone messages uh, before we play the last segment uh, in the next podcast. I truly appreciate all the all the feedback I've been getting from everybody. Uh, it's exciting to hear, and uh, it's exciting to bring you this type of content. Something I haven't done before. Uh, so there you go. Um, before I get out of here, let me tell you about some, some comedy action coming at ya. Oh yeah, some comedy action coming at you, boys and girls. Uh, let's see. What do we got? We got, uh, San Jose, the improv. Yeah, baby, it starts tonight, uh, October 20th through the, uh, 23rd. And a great club up in San Jose, California. Uh, come on out to the Improv and uh, look forward to seeing you. And then going into November, you can catch me in Denver, November 11 and 12. Then I'm in uh, San Diego, November 17th to the 20th. And then Irvine, California, Thanksgiving weekend, November 25 to 27. Man, oh man, some great clubs, going to be some great shows. So come on out, play Um Also, if you want to write to me about uh, anything at all, including the short story, three, uh, you can go to harlowwilliams.com and uh, you can click on the um, you can click on the old uh, contact link and write to me. Or you can call me at 323-739-4330. Uh, that's 323-739-4330. And leave me a voicemail. It takes about six or seven rings before it picks up. I'm having some tech issues. Um, but but hang in there, and you will uh, be able to leave a message. And uh, check out our store at harlowwilliams.com. We will mail you, ship you anything that you purchase in the store. Lots of great fun stuff. And uh, digital downloads and all that stuff. Be sure and, and get our phone app, the Harland Highway phone app. Just type the Harland Highway into your cell phone and boom, you can download it for free and listen to the podcast as soon as they are posted wherever you may be on your uh, cell phone. It's good stuff. And if you uh, have 20 bucks kicking around, join our premium membership, $20 a year. You get to hear the Garden Hose Time Machine story before anyone else does. 
And uh, also, you uh, you are privy to my other podcast, Let's Have a Fight, and all kinds of bonus material that, that everyone else does not get, which I hate to do, but come on. I got I to cheat my premium members, right, player? Uh, so there you go. That's it. Thanks for being here, everybody. And uh, until next time, chicken chow mein, baby.